<clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. What are some things that you have for Thanksgiving? And kids are like, turkey and mashed potatoes. And I was like, rice and lumpia. And they were like, what? <laughs> like, you, the what? I'm like, oh, you guys don't have rice for Thanksgiving? Like, I mean, we had the turkey, we had mashed potatoes, we had the whole thing, but we also had some of the Filipino elements, right? You are going to love this episode. Anna and I dissect what it means to be Filipino in America when you grow up with blonde hair and look white. Anna dives deep into those early experiences and how they impacted her. Can't wait for you to get to know Anna. This is Partially Pinoy, and we are powered by Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics. The first question I get asked when people find out my parents are Filipino-Iranian is, how do they meet? So that is a question I am presenting to you, Anna. Tell me, how did your parents meet? I appreciate this question so much because I typically, my mom is Filipino, and rather than asking, how did your parents meet? A lot of times I get, oh, so your dad was a GI. Like the assumption that, oh, so your dad must have been in, you know, the military. Um, So my mom actually came here for college. Um, This is like a very condensed version of this story (laughs) because it actually starts with my, uh, my aunt, my tita, the eldest on my mom's side. She came to the States first, two brothers followed, and then my mom followed. Um, So my mom went to Merrimack College and funny enough, my parents both met at an underage um, like club in Boston. It was like an 18, 18 plus as opposed to 21 plus. Um, my mom loved dancing. My dad, hilariously enough, does not like dancing, but he decided to join his friends and say, okay. Um, my dad also, we laugh about it now because he, he looks, he reminds us so much of like Napoleon Dynamite in his photos from back in the day. We're like, dad, you were such a dork. Um, <laughs> but he saw my mom, asked for her number. She gave it to him and he didn't believe that it was actually her number. Cause she, my mom was like drop dead gorgeous. And here's Napoleon Dynamite shooting his shot being like, Hey, maybe, maybe she'll give it to me. Um, called her that night. She actually picked up and he like hung up immediately and was like, Oh my God, this is her real number. And the rest is history. They got married within like eight months of dating each other and have been together for over 30 years now. So, wow. I love that story so much. I love the condensed version. I bet I would love the, you know, (laughs) long form version. So your mom moved to Massachusetts from Manila. So she followed my aunt and her two brothers who actually went to, um, college in Utah. Okay. Um, so, and I want to say they had all like visited Massachusetts. She fell in love with it and she decided, okay, I'm going to actually go to college in Massachusetts, decided on Merrimack college. And my dad was from like the greater Boston area. He was, uh, he grew up in Whitman. So 
they met at that like little club in, in Boston. How old was she when she moved here? Do you know? I know she was 18 when she went to college, when she started college. It always blows my mind because I grew up with this story. So it was so normal to me until I got a little bit older. My parents got married. Neither of them could even drink champagne at their own wedding. They were so young. Um, and I, I remember hearing this story a billion times growing up that they were at my paternal grandparents' house. My grandfather's like, oh, what are you two kids up to this weekend? And my dad's like, oh, well, we're getting married on Saturday if you want to come. And it was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I remember turning 19 because they were 19 and 20 when they officially got married. And then they had six months later, they had a church wedding with everyone, but they got married in the court first. And I remember turning 19 and having this moment where I was like, you two are bonkers. Like you're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. You did this at 19 and 20. And I remember telling my parents, like, can you imagine if I told you like on a Thursday, Hey, by the way, I'm getting married to my boyfriend this Saturday. If you want to (laughs) come. Yeah. At the courthouse, by the way, like no, no planning. Uh, so, you know, when I think of that story, I'm reminded of just the immigrant story in general, because my mom moved to America when she was 30, like she moved our entire family. I mean, I'm an only child, so it was just me and her, but she moved I mean, her life at 36 from one country to another. And I know people do that all the time, but I think what kind of courage does it take a person to like uproot their entire lives from one country to another? I don't know that I could have done it and bring your kids along, right? I am in awe of how many people do it, but in particular with our culture, with Filipinos, I don't know one person that doesn't have at least someone in the family that lives elsewhere to either help support the family or that just said, I want something different for myself. Um, The absolute courage it takes and the belief that everything will be okay is just astounding to me. How many years after they got married, were you born? Are you an only child? Um, I have two siblings. So I have an older sister and a younger brother. It was a couple years after they got married that my mom had my sister. I want to say it was three and a half, four years later. They really did try to, they weren't trying to like, let's go gung-ho, let's start a family immediately. I think they really were trying to establish and prove to the families that we're serious. Like we want to build a life together. My mom says it all the time now that they truly grew up together. I think there was a lot of trial and error, a lot of, you know, how do we make this work financially? How do we make this work? You know, how do we coexist together in our new apartment? Just all of these things. Culturally, Yeah, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of love and a lot of compassion and understanding to be able to do that with one another and to make it last for 30 plus years. So what's your impression of the chemistry that they have with each other? You and I know as product of a mixed race union that 
love transcends so much. And so how do you think they were able to overcome those sort of built-in differences that maybe they didn't feel, but that others wanted to impose on them or project onto them? Honestly, I think they truly were meant for one another. I think they complement each other really well in that my mom is very feisty, very impulsive, very... Uh, she was always known as the rebel in her family. Like if you tell her yes, she'll tell you no. If you tell her blue, she'll tell you red. And we'll always march to the beat of her own drum. And my dad is so laid back, so patient, so what I consider a good man, always trying to do the right thing. And I think that they just really love each other and they complement each other really well in that they drive each other absolutely bonkers, but they also give each other what the other is lacking. How did you come to understand and know that you were mixed race? Like, What was the environment like where you grew up and were there other kids like you? So... Um, (laughs) it's, it's, it was a strange upbringing to be sure looking back because in the house, in our home, we had such a strong, um, Filipino influence in our household. My mom, my grandparents, my aunt, my uncles, because they actually ended up moving to Massachusetts as well. Um, everyone really made it a point to instill pride, to instill this is where we come from, we come from, inclusive we, you also come from this, Uh, this runs in your blood, this, here are our traditions, here is our food, this is how we define family, this is how we define faith, like all these things in the home was so strongly influenced by Filipino culture, And outside the home, of course, you know, we were always very prideful to be Filipino, but outside the home, you know, you have an American upbringing in school and with other family members. And we were known as the Filipino kids in our entire school district. Um, We did have some fellow uh, mixed race friends that were Filipino and white. I actually grew up knowing them as my cousins until one day my mom dropped a bomb on me and she was like, Kyle and Kristen, they're not your cousins. I was like, what? Like, (laughs) like mind blown. There was one time when I was really young in school and we were talking about Thanksgiving. Okay, kids, you know, we're having Thanksgiving. Like, what are you going to, what are some things that you have for Thanksgiving? And kids are like, turkey and mashed potatoes. And I was like, rice and lumpia. They were like, what? (laughs) The what? I'm like, oh, you guys don't have rice for Thanksgiving? Like, I mean, we had the turkey, we had mashed potatoes, we had the whole thing, but we also had some of the Filipino elements, right? I can remember another time going to a friend's house and we were eating dinner and I was like, "Um, do you, uh, can I have a spoon? because I grew up eating either with my hands or with a fork and a spoon. Like those were the, the two that I, it wasn't usually a fork and a knife. And the look that my friend's parent gave me was like, but we're not having soup. Like, what are you talking? What do you need a spoon for? I was like to eat 
the meal. Like, what do you mean? Like I, so there were just these moments that you go, Oh my gosh, am I that different? And it was more additionally strange for me. I feel like because I am very white presenting, I naturally have strawberry blonde hair growing up, fair skin, like my dad, but I have my mom's facial features. I was a Rubik's cube to a lot of people. My mom would pick me up and they'd be like, Oh, is this your nanny? That's my mom. And it'd be like, were you adopted? Like, Oh, I see it now. Okay. I see it. So when you can pass for white, which I think is another way of saying white presenting, we have had, you know, there've been people I've spoken with who, because they pass as white, they found that connecting to their Filipino side among others who are also Filipino was, was harder. Like they personally felt like they could connect to it, but if they were, you know, going into a room of Filipinos or trying to join the Filipino club, they almost, you know, automatically self-impose this, you know, I don't belong here kind of mantra. And so you had these parents who are strong in who they are. You grew up in that way. Maybe there wasn't a ton of space for you to question your identity early on, but were there moments when you felt that I, I need to fit into a particular box and I don't know how to do that. My family's definitely not perfect. And like, even within my own family, there were moments where I was like, okay, so harmlessly being teased right in your own family is a thing. It's like, it's not, it wasn't like, you know, this is abuse, but I would be teased for being so pale on my mom's side, but then I would be considered one of the Asian kids on my dad's side. And it's like, okay, so I don't, I'm not fully just on a side, you know, not that you need to be on a side when you're mixed. And that's something that I've learned over the years. But um, I mean, there were so many instances growing up where it was like these differences were kind of shoved in my own face. Because like you say, I did grow up in a supportive household in that in the home, it was like, you are Filipino, period. You're Filipino American, period. Like, you don't have to explain yourself here. Um, You just are who you are. But as you navigate life, you know, through childhood and through your teenage years and young adulthood, people do question and they do they almost insert questions into your own brain because um, for instance, you know, I would, there was one time where uh, my first official like family vacation to the Philippines, I was like 10. Um, My mom had taken me when I was like two, but I don't remember it. And I remember telling uh, we were in class and I was sitting next to this boy, like Tim, Tom, I don't know, whatever his name was. Um, and I remember saying, oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to go visit family in the Philippines. And he literally told me why, he, or literally asked me why. It's like, because I have family there. What do you mean? Like, what, what kind of a question is that? He's like, well, you're not Asian. I'm like, but I am though. Like, what do you mean I'm not? Like, how can you question that when you don't know me? You don't know my family. And it's questions like that, that I didn't understand why I was so hurt by them because I was constantly being asked to prove who I am. 
where I come from, who my family is. And uh, yeah, there were, I mean, there were so many instances like that. There was one time my family went and visited some other family who lived in like the Virginia DC area. We went out to a Filipino restaurant and the woman who was um, working there, she's like, Oh, where are you all from? And I, I was just a kid. I was probably like 10, probably like 12. And I was so excited that there was a Filipino restaurant because in Massachusetts, there really aren't any, I mean, there's a few now, thankfully, but back like back growing up, there weren't any, so I was just so excited to be there. And I was like, oh, the Philippines. And she laughed in my face. Like, she was like, no, you're not. Ha ha ha. Like, there's no way you're from the Philippines. And I got so embarrassed because I was like, oh, that's not what I meant. I mean, we are a Filipino. We're from Massachusetts. And like, you know, it's just moments like that. that I was like, man, do I really not? Do I really not have the, the right to claim Filipino as an identity because of the way I present, I was born like this. So, um, and you know, but then you get the opposite side of that, where there are some people who right away, they're like, what are you? Like, what do you mean? Like, well, what are you? You're definitely not fully white. Like, okay. Yeah. I'm Filipino. Like I'm proudly Filipino. So I don't care if you know that or don't, but the intonation was kind of like, you're not a purebred what are you, you mutt, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I imagine that those moments of people telling you what you are like for people like us, that that's never going to stop. It'll exist our entire life. I think, you know, the magic and kind of understanding who we are and becoming more vocal about who we are is just that we get better at handling these moments, you know, and, and in a way, hopefully educate people. I do unfortunately believe that those who are affected by ignorance very often are the ones who need to educate others. You know, the, the oppressor never gives the rights to the oppressed. And so I think, you know, there is a responsibility. I was recently reading Obama's new book, The Promised Land, or listening to it. And he said that he had to come to terms later on in his life with all these things he would hear about or hear people tell him when he was growing up. And one of it was that he had a friend in high school who would say to him, I don't think of you as black. And he just was like, well, what does that even mean? And, and the stuff that you just described are kind of a variation of that experience of, of having someone say you, you know, kind of diminish this, this part of you, which is devastating, right? Yeah. People get very uncomfortable when they can't place you. Um, that's what I found over the course of my 30 years of life, that people who can't put a pin on exactly who you are or where you come from so that they can have a better understanding right away of who you are based on what you look like. I was asked so often, what are you? What are you? What are you? I would play a game. I'd be like, guess. I want you to guess what I am. Some of the ones that I got, I got, um, are you albino Chinese? Do you even understand what you just said? And the fact that we don't say albino anymore. And so how did it feel for you to, you know, go through that exercise? I feel like in a way I was almost trying to reclaim some sort of power in that question for myself 
because I was so sick of having that question. And then my immediate feeling response, the, the immediate feeling that I felt was small because I felt like, okay, how much of myself do I have to explain to this particular person for them to just accept the answer? Because it always came in degrees. Some people I could say, oh, well, I'm, I'm half Filipino. I'm Filipino and white. For some people, that was enough. And they'd go, oh, I knew, you know, I knew it. I knew there was something. I knew you were Asian. I knew you were Filipino. I knew you weren't full white. And that's that. For other people, they wanted to dig even deeper and deeper and like, oh, so your dad was a GI. Oh, so your mom came here for a better life, huh? Oh, so, and like the insinuations and the questions would just hurt more and more. And that's where I was like, let me just flip this on you. Like, what do you think I am? You know, let's ha ha ha. Let's make it a game because I just can't deal with. And I think I, I also, I didn't have better understanding of myself. I didn't have the vocabulary really to confidently explain and confidently claim my identity where now, like we didn't, I, I did, I had never heard white presenting. I had never heard of that. I'm still coming to terms with being able to say I am a white presenting person of color. There are so many degrees of identity that we have now that we have vocabulary for now that we didn't growing up. So there's just a lot that over the course of the last few years has been helpful in becoming more confident in explaining and claiming who I am. I also related to that, think that the way that we can identify ourselves now is really educating others. Even just saying like, I am white presenting is a way of teaching. Instead of sort of diminishing yourself, it's sort of elevating someone else. We'll return to our show and hear more from our guest in just a moment. And I had a manager at a restaurant that I worked at. Somehow it came up that I was Filipino. Literally, like, he was like 40, whips around. He was like, oh my God, wait, you're Asian? Yeah. He's like, you are so much hotter to me now. Like, in front of everyone, I'm 18. Like, it's like disgusting. This show is brought to you by Podcast Network Asia, powered by Podmetrics. Podmetrics takes care of the details so we can focus on making the best content for you. Visit podmetrics.co and sign up for free. Use code PARTIALLYPINOY. So let's let's uh, dive into your art and, and your talent. Tell me about like those first few moments in your life where you realized that this was something that was, you know, dying to come out of you. Oh man. (laughs) So I was always the creative kid in my family. I was always (laughs) the, uh, the emotional one. I was always the, the bleeding heart. Like I, uh, 
Yeah. I was always the most emotional person in my family, known for being emotional, known for being creative, which a lot of times do go hand in hand. I'm a Pisces and also like creative, like I, but I suppressed it for such a long time. Define for me what creative means to you when you say I'm a creative, what does that mean? For me to be a creative means I need to express, I need to express my ideas, my emotions, or my thoughts through a create some sort of creative process, whether that be painting or, you know, joining a podcast or um, writing. I am a vessel for these larger ideas and they, they need to come out because if you do, I, I also went through a period of time where I was heavily suppressing myself and I was the most miserable I've ever been in my life. Through high school, I remember you couldn't get me to stop drawing on things, but I never accepted that this is part of just who I am and this is part of what I need in order to, let's say, process grief or to process these questions with my identity and, you know, et cetera, things in your teenage years. I was an athlete and I identified more heavily with that. I'm like, I'm a student athlete who draws on things, but that's just kind of like, meh. And then in college, I did one semester at Assumption College in Worcester, Mass. And I was like, okay, I'll be, I'll do business because you can't go wrong with getting a business degree as an 18 year old being like, sure, why not? And my, that first semester, I ended up taking a painting class as like an elective. And I immediately fell in love with it. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't feel, I've never felt this sort of creative release ever because I was being um, more thoughtful and intentional with the ways that, okay, let me paint this this way because I'm trying to say this. Um, So in the (laughs) classically dramatic way that I had to do this, I transferred to um, the University of Massachusetts in Lowell to their graphic design and fine art program. I did not tell my parents until the day before I was supposed to move back to uh, this college in Worcester. My parents were like, okay, Anna, it's time to pack up. It's time to this and that. We'll see you. We'll drive you tomorrow. And I said, actually, I'm not going back. I enrolled myself in an art program in Lowell. I'll be living here. And, you know, they were like, what? And (laughs) I mean, ultimately they were supportive at the end of the day. But at first they were like, first of all, why didn't you feel like you could tell us? Second of all, okay, so you want to go for art? Like, is this the smartest move? Like, it was just, they were so nervous for me. But I convinced them. I said, you know what? I I really feel passionate about this and I'm going to learn. The way I sold it is I'm going to learn graphic design. It's sort of like the business end of the art world. And it's, you know, it's a booming industry. Like I'll be able to get a job, you know, all this stuff. Went to the University of Massachusetts in Lowell and it was like, I found my people. Like I was like, wow, everyone's, everyone's just creating all the time. And Um, I tried really, really, really hard to actually 
um, become talented in graphic design was not for me. I mean, I was like panicking because I'm like, oh my gosh, if I don't become a graphic designer, my parents are going to kill me. Like, this is the whole reason why I swapped, you know, all this stuff ended up, I ended up graduating with a degree technically in graphic design, but I took all these fine art courses and I got a job at a school, ended up getting a job in corporate in, um, in Boston, worked in like the corporate Boston world for a couple years and wasn't using my degree really aside from I would draw at home. I would do these little projects for myself and I was miserable. Like I was just like, I'm paying my bills. I'm making good money, but something is missing. Like I just, I'm like, I'm just not happy. And, um, you know, I met my husband, we, we got married. I was still working in, in, um, in Boston. And I remember we had a pretty frank conversation and he was just like, Anna, you're miserable. What is it that you want to do? Because whatever it is, we can make it work. Like we'll make it work. Um, I ended up, I quit my corporate job to work at a restaurant in, in Salem where we live today, Salem Mass. Um, quit my corporate job, was like, okay, I'm going to work in a restaurant that I can walk to from our apartment. That way, all that time that I spent commuting back and forth to the city, all that time I was sitting at that desk, I will commit to making artwork. I want to become an artist, full-time artist. That's my goal. Started working at that restaurant. And I'm not kidding you. I wish I was joking. A month later, that restaurant closed, like shut their doors. <laughs> And I kind of went, oh my gosh, is this like the universe or God telling me like, absolutely not, Anna, this is not going to happen for you. I'm sorry. And I was like, no, no, I have to believe that this is this, something is going on. I just have to have faith that this will work out. They have a sister restaurant in Salem, could still walk to it. They gave me like one shift a week because they felt so bad. They knew I left my, my job in Boston. They have all these chalkboards. I mean, the place is like covered in chalkboards and I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to make this work. I ended up getting a job across the street at this like travel company. And I kept that one shift a week at this place called Gulu Gulu Cafe. I saw your poster. I saw your stories about that cafe, which, which first when I saw it, I was like, is that owned by a Filipino? Just the way it sounds, you know, Gulu Gulu. So meant to be, it sounds to me like on so many levels, but so many levels it was meant to be because I, like, I, I, like I said, I, I wish I was kidding, but I got that job right across the street. It was like a nine to five office assistant job. Easy enough that I could, I could still walk to it. I could leave it at the door. Like the stress didn't come home with me. I decided once I was like, okay, whew, like that was crazy. Now I am on my feet. What did you say that you left Boston to do? You said that you would spend your time that you would have been commuting, creating artwork. So put your money where your mouth is unless, because this would all be for nothing. All that stress would be for nothing. If you don't back up what you said you were going to do. So I started a project at Gulu called a hundred days of Gulu. And I did one different chalkboard every single day for a hundred days. Um, like we would, you know, we, 
we'd go up to New Hampshire. I'd, I'd go there first thing in the morning. I got to get my chalkboard done and then we can go, um, did that. And things just started snowballing. Like people started to notice they were like, Oh, like, okay, there's a couple of chalkboards. Oh, this is like a project. This is a whole thing. Got a couple other gigs doing chalkboards. Then I, I joined, there's like a creative collective here in Salem the owner and the founder of that kind of talked to me a little bit. And he was like, Hey, like, would you be interested in joining? This is a great networking opportunity. We have a, we have a lot of ties with the city and all that stuff. I said, you know what? Yeah. Why don't I do that? Made a lot of great connections through them. And it just has spiraled and spiraled and spiraled until last, last July, I ended up getting laid off from my nine to five job, which I was terrified about, but I ended up saying, you know what, now this is the, the moment if I can't make it work when, cause I, I think I would have been too afraid to pull the plug myself and officially say, I can't, I'm going to quit and I'm just going to be an artist because the stability, the insurance, like all of it, like it is so scary to give that up willingly. And I swear this is like divine intervention because that was the moment. And I think I really was ready. Like it really happened when I was actually ready. I ended up saying, okay, this is it. I'm going to become a full-time artist. And since that moment, I have had gig after gig, after gig, after gig, they have just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's just been unbelievable. What you're saying is so powerful. And I hear that. And the experience for me was also so similar. I would have never had the courage to make that decision. And I think in the moment too, when I was like really depressed at work, I felt like I could, you know, when you start getting like depressed in your nine to five life, your work suffers and there are all these other consequences. And so not being able to pull the plug at all, not being able to quit and then praying to be let go so I could get a severance and then actually having that happen and then just feeling so free. And I even said, you know, um, if me losing this fix, uh, if me losing the six figure job means that we have to go live in a hut with our four children, then so be it. I would rather do that than go another day being miserable. But I also will say that in the moment that I was, I still remember like at where I was when I was being told that I was being let go, I had the opposite emotion of what you might expect for someone. I just felt like this relief. It was like this heavy, heavy burden had completely left my body. I could breathe. I was so happy. And I think it's so incredible that our teachers sometimes look like our worst enemies on the outside, but they're actually in a way, our greatest givers. So true. So true. I tell people all the time that more often than not, when life feels like it's the hardest or when something feels like this could be the worst thing in the world, I I often find that people, uh, they'll go, oh, why is God doing this to me? Like, oh, like, how could you do this to me? How could this happen to me? I'm always like, you know what? Your teacher never stands next to you to give you the answers when you're in the middle of a test. I'm like, this could be your biggest lesson yet. I'm like, it's up to you to, to learn what is like, take away what is supposed to be taken away from this moment. Don't waste, don't waste this moment. Don't waste this lesson because we all know the lesson will need to be taught in one way or another. Exactly. (laughs) 
So, you know, knowing what you know about your creativity and the path it took to get to where you are, which sounds to me was fairly recent, you can count on one hand, like the number of years you've been fully devoted to your art, knowing what you know, how do you think about those times when it was a struggle You've explained it a little bit right now about how that was, you know, part of the journey of getting to where you are, but how, you know, like, how do you almost like embrace your creativity knowing what the alternative is or how do you kind of motivate yourself to keep going in, in a space where a lot of self-motivation is required? I think that's true actually for all industries, but it feels to me that when you decide to be a creative you have to decide all the time to be a creative. Yeah, that is so true. <laughs> it is it is really difficult, but I think having the knowledge of what's on the other side of the door, having already chosen to walk through it, or really having the opportunity to walk through it, it, it helps me when I'm in my, when I'm having a tough moment with my current situation, with my current job, it helps me see the challenges of this side of the door I am built for. I, I, I know how to navigate these kinds of, you know, rough waters or whatever other analogy I could come up with. I'm built for it. You know, success or any kind of success, it doesn't come without failure and it doesn't come without challenge. If anything, they're necessary pillars for your success. So, Whenever I am in a tough spot or having a tough client or there's a dry spell, or if I'm just not feeling creative, because sometimes that happens where it's like, man, this is my job now. Like if my creative tank is empty, what do I do? And thankfully it is recent enough where I do have that almost muscle memory of, you know, where you could be right now. You could be at that desk. You know exactly what it feels like to be there. The insurance comes with it and, you know, you know what your salary is going to be. That's what keeps me disciplined is that I know what is on the other side of that door and I've yeah. lived it and I can live it. That's the thing. Like I, I can do it. You know, we've both proven you can live that life, but do you want to? And that's, that's the part where I try really hard to empower myself instead of, I think a lot of people get caught up in how do I keep what I have? How do I keep what I have? And it's terrifying because you're constantly running from the other thing as opposed to running to the thing that you want. I don't see this as how do I keep what I have? It's I see it as how do I continue growing? Um, it's not a thing that can be taken away from me necessarily. I just have to understand that I am constantly trying to grow. I am constantly trying to cultivate what I have and choose it every day. And that's, that's the empowering thing is like, you can, I, I know that I can do other things, but I choose to do this every day. And that's a very empowering, a, a very empowering thought to have. And it, I, I don't think I felt that way at all in my office job. <laughs> Empowered. <laughs> Or it was some sort of fake empowering driven by like performance reviews and all that other stuff. Um, but when you're doing your art, your performance review is in 
it's in it's in the art. The feedback is you, you can't manipulate it. It either exists or it doesn't and you can grow and cultivate. And yeah, I think, oh gosh, if I really wanted to be an insurance salesman, I'm sure I could be an insurance salesman. You know, sometimes talk to my husband about like podcasting and, you know, all these different projects I have. I'll say like, this has to work. It has to work. Like there, there is no other option. And I really believe it, you know, because I know that there's something driving me from inside for this and other projects too. And I think, wow, there's so many things I feel like I can do now. Um, I have a son who's 12 and he has for the longest time said, you know, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. And we try not to ask those types of questions of our kids, but I know I don't want, I don't want it to be in an office. And I just, you know, I hear that and I just think, yes, like, what can I do now? What can I do now to make sure that he never has to work? If he feels as a child that he never wants to work in an office, what can I do to make sure you never have to do that? And so I think parents do owe it to their kids to help them find that thing that they are kind of driving. Do you have any comments on that in your own upbringing and maybe what... Because I, after that, like after you answer this question, I want to ask you about how your identity has fueled the subject of your art. And then I know that a lot of it extends to social justice, just sort of more general social justice issues in America. Again, knowing what you know now, when you connect it back to your childhood, what do you think happened that kind of led to here? And, and I know you've touched on that, but I think specifically that suppression part of it, it's something I'm really interested in. It's so funny because I can think back growing up and always having this creative side in me. I always fueled it in little ways, right? Like I like to draw and I would subconsciously draw all over my notebooks and things like that. But at some point I realized that I needed to hand that voice the microphone and I'm so, so grateful that growing up, both my mom and dad really have always been so supportive. Um, they've always, there's always been, of course, the, the element of pressure, not necessarily to succeed, but just to do the right thing. And they want so badly for their kids to be happy and to, and yes, to succeed. And I think when you're young, either as a child or even in your teenage years, sometimes your own interpretations of what success is are limited. You hear those things and you're like, okay, so in order to be successful, I need to be a lawyer or like a doctor or you know things like that. And especially knowing from a young age, the situation that we're in, in the States, as far as like our upbringing is very different to a lot of people. We have access to a lot of things that people don't. So even though I don't think I had the right vocabulary for it as a child, it's like looking back, I think I always had that self-pressure of like, don't squander this. Like you have so much opportunity. So you, you've got to do it. You have to be successful for your family, for yourself for, you know, make your mom proud, make your grandparents proud, make your dad proud. Like, and I think the pressure that you put on yourself, it, along with the way that the education system in America is with the focus on, you know, standardized testing and math and sciences and all that stuff, 
you do kind of boil it down to success is doctor, lawyer, tech jobs or corporate boss jobs and things like that. And I don't think I even allowed myself to think that art was a path that could equal success for a very, very, very long time, even well into my teens, well into my early 20s. It's taken me a long time to understand that success is so much more than a corporate job. It's so much more than being able to afford this, that, or the other thing. Success can look like just being happy in your day-to-day life. It can look like having the outlet to express yourself or to reach people. Because I think as creatives, that's one of, for me at least, that's one of my biggest um, measures of creative, creative success is, is my work reaching people? And I don't mean, is this getting 5,000 likes? I mean, is this connecting with anyone? Is this helping anyone else? Because I know that I don't experience life in a vacuum. I know that there are things that are universal and there are things that are specific to, let's say, a mixed race community. So broadening my definition of success has definitely helped because I don't think I had that when I was younger. We want to say hi and big thanks to the guys from Kumu. Kumu is a Pinoy live streaming app where you can tambay with Filipino streamers and celebrities. Use our link in the description to follow some amazing Kumu streamers. Speaking of reaching people, tell me about how your own identity and coming to understand that identity has fueled your work. A lot of it is focused on social justice Uh, How do those things connect for you? When I started really getting more serious about creating work, it's almost like you have to get through the surface stuff first, right? Before you can really dive down into what is it that I want to say? What is it that I want to focus on? Especially with social media, it's difficult because I think a lot of creatives get trapped in what do people want to see from me? And I think I was doing that for a little while where I was like, oh, like what's getting the most likes or what kind of subject matter do people want to see? And then I started to say, that doesn't make sense for me because I wasn't feeling like I was creating authentically. And I started to sort of ask myself questions. What's important to me? What do I want to create work about? What would I want to see? Like, what would I, if I were 12 or you know, 16 or 22, what would I have needed to see that I haven't seen? And I started to create some work that was based off of my identity and, you know, the nuances of being mixed race and, you know, my connection to Filipino culture and, you know, all that stuff. And I started to organically find people were connecting to it. Because I wasn't trying to guess what other people wanted to hear or wanted to see. I was just creating from what I knew I needed to see. And that's when I started to understand or better understand that life doesn't happen in a vacuum. We all have very, very unique experiences, but there are some things that are universal. 
And there are some other things that until we hear it from someone else, it might take us years before we can understand or have words for or imagery for what we feel. And I found that most often people will reach out and they'll say, I didn't even know I needed that. Or I didn't have the words. I didn't have the words before to, to say that's exactly how I feel. And there, there's, it's like, there's nothing that feels better for me as a creative or as a human being really than to connect with these other people, because we do crave connection and we do crave community in our, our people. I think so many of us, myself included for so many years, you kind of travel through life in this limbo of like, I don't belong anywhere. When you're mixed race, you don't feel like you belong anywhere because you belong in multiple places, but not fully. And it's a bunch of BS. So being able to find a community online has been so cathartic. And that has allowed me to find more of my voice and ask myself, what else do I care about? Because your identity doesn't comprise solely of your DNA. It doesn't comprise solely of your ethnic background or your upbringing. It's so much more than that. So I did, I have started creating more and more work about, you know, social justice and about what it's like to live as a mixed race person in America. Like, cause I would, I would never assume to describe someone else's experiences, but I'm happy to speak on my own. And if other people can connect with that or can identify with that, then that's enough for me. Yeah. That was so beautiful. And I feel the same way. Sometimes all people will just, people who are mixed race will just come and, you know, um, comment or reach out to me and say that they're so moved. Um, it's so important to have it. And in that context, it's great. And then in other contexts, if I'm like in a corporate podcasting space and I say what it is that, you know, my podcast is on half Filipino identity. It's like, it's so niche when you hear it, but to me, it's like the biggest thing in the world because I know that it's a big deal. I know that there are people all over the world struggling. I know that there are people who grew up this way, a ton of us who grew up this way. And I know that there needs to be a space. And so it sounds niche, but it isn't. And I think that's what's beautiful about art. Last thing I'm going to ask you has to do with giving advice to someone who is mixed race, maybe half Filipino, going through a struggling moment of trying to figure out their identity. What would you tell someone who is having this experience or maybe even tell yourself as a young person, as you're coming of age and getting to know yourself? The thing that I wish someone had explicitly just said to me because I think it's implied a lot of the time, but it's never just explicitly said is that the percentage of your bloodline does not dictate whether or not you belong in a space. Like I, I've always grown up saying I'm half Filipino. I'm half Filipino. I'm like, what does that even mean? Like what? So, so I'm only half. So what, are, what is the half I can claim? Like what, like if we were to lay out 
Filipino culture, what are the, what are the 50% of things that I have to leave behind? Because my father is white. What, like, what does that even mean? So to whoever else would need to hear it, including myself, my younger self and my current self, you are who you are. If you're half Filipino, you are Filipino, period. You don't have to justify identifying with yourself. It, it just doesn't make sense. And the only people, it's, it's only for other people that we, we go through these like identity crisis. Because when I was a kid, I never questioned who I was because I, just, I was just me and that was enough. I, and until I started feeling different, until I started these, you know, these microaggressions of like the questions and, you know, being asked, what are you for the hundredth time? It makes you believe that you have to prove who you are. You have to, you have to know explicitly who you are so that you're armed with some sort of defense for that kind of question. And you don't owe anybody anything. You don't, owe anybody an explanation of who you are and what makes up your identity because you don't have to justify yourself like you're enough whoever you are you're enough that's beautiful I'd love to be able to get to a place where I I mean it doesn't come up much especially in California unless I because I really do want to educate people but I love the idea of saying I'm Filipino Iranian American I do I do find myself wanting to point out that it's my dad who's Filipino, because I think that also dispels a lot of myths about Filipino women in general. I think that's something else that just really bugs me. There's just this assumption that, you know, just because your mom's Filipina, exactly as you said, that some, so I think for me, there's an undercurrent like point I'm trying to make that we all look, we, we come in all shapes and sizes really. And you can't just make an assumption. I also have this very defensive way that I can explain who my parents are because I, I really, uh, I have such an issue with people who insinuate that my mom was either like marrying my dad for a green card or, oh, was she a mail order bride? Like I've gotten that explicitly asked before I've had it implied. I've had, you know, the Oh, your dad was a GI, like... Or the Asian fetish. Yes, yes. Oh, so your dad was a rice queen. Like, it's like, it's some really, you know... I, I, I get very defensive about it because my parents are actually the exact complete opposite of the stereotype of Filipino versus American. My dad grew up, like, dirt poor. My mom in the Philippines grew up very well off. The implication that people give that, like, oh, so your your mom married your dad for a better life, blah, blah, blah. I just don't like when people imply that my mother was using my dad or the white male Asian woman fetish thing pisses me off to no end. It makes me so uncomfortable, makes me so mad. I did a mural on it in Salem recently. Like I was 18 and I had a manager at a restaurant that I worked at. Somehow it came up that I was Filipino. Literally like that. He was like 40 whips around. He was like, oh my God, wait, you're Asian. Yeah. He's like, you are so much hotter to me now. Like in front of everyone, I'm 18. Like it's like disgusting. And we all have moments like that. And it makes me so bad.
Partially Pinoy is a Podcast Network Asia production in partnership with Bridger Media in Los Angeles. Our show is developed and executive produced by Leila Jerusalem. The series is produced by Nikai Lucanias. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. <laughs>